Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis, news, and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The next voice you'll hear is Sean Spear in conversation with David Frum. Enjoy. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum, another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogue. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing parallel conservative leadership campaigns in Canada and Britain, including the different selection processes and what the ideas, issues, and personalities animating them tell us about the state of conservatism across the Anglosphere. David, thank you for joining me, as always. Pleasure. Glad to be back. Let's start with Boris Johnson's sacking as British Conservative Party leader. You wrote in its aftermath that all Johnson wanted was, quote, a good time and an easy job. His ultimate failure as a prime minister seemed to stem from these personal failings. That said... Under his leadership, the party made major gains in the 2019 election, including in long-held Labour ridings. As the party chooses his successor, what, if any, parts of Johnsonism, if I can call it that, ought to be maintained? Well, British politics now is essentially a process of coping with the enormous decision of Brexit. In my view, an enormous act of self-harm. It's an act of self-harm that probably cannot be remedied within a generation. And so Britain has to work around it and find politicians who can work around it. That means developing positive relationships with Europe, overwhelmingly uh, Britain's most important trade and investment partner. Um, So Johnson's um, secret sauce in that relationship was he didn't seem to have the kind of personal hostility uh, to European governments that Uh, other Brexiteers did have. Um, Johnson's a good-natured person. I think that's uh, among the many reasons why the comparisons between Johnson and Trump are are so wrong, uh, is that Trump is a profoundly malicious and unpleasant person. And and Johnson, he was careless and irresponsible, but but he wasn't malicious and was able to develop positive relationships um, with other people, including uh, democratic leaders, which Trump never did well with. So that's going to be the problem that Britain has, is how how do they find a path back to stable economic growth, to attracting foreign investment, having essentially taken the most uh, protectionist step that any major developed country has taken since, well, since in memory. The race to succeed Johnson started even before he stepped down. One thing that's striking about the race, David, is its youthfulness and diversity. Of the slate of now six candidates, four women, three are ethnic minorities, and three happen to be born in the 1980s. Uh, That contrasts with current leadership in Washington, where President Biden and Speaker Pelosi on the Democratic side and former President Trump and Senate Minority Leader 
um, Mitch McConnell on the Republican side are all over 70 years old, and some are even in their 80s. Why this difference? Why are American political leaders so old? Well, those are two questions. First, let's pay special tribute here to the Conservative Party of Great Britain, which um, has a remarkable and long history of reaching out to outsiders. Benjamin Disraeli, um, Edward Heath, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Theresa May, not only the first female prime minister of Great Britain, but the second female prime minister of, of Great Britain. Um, there has been something about the way that party operates that has made it open to different kinds of leaders in a way that other British parties, Labour uh, Labor and before them the Liberals, were, were not. Uh, the age of, of American politicians um, is especially a problem for the Democratic Party, because there it's not just the president, Joe Biden, but the leadership in Congress. And I, I think part of the answer to that may be that the Democratic Party is evolving in ways that are um, politically dangerous um, that to itself, to its own fortunes. Um, that the younger generations of Democrats are very prone to fratricidal identity conflicts over ethnicity, over race, over sex. Um, and uh, so the Democrats postpone those destructive conflicts of the future by accepting leadership from a previous generation where the people are poised to lunge at each other and say, well, let's just, we can postpone this fight for another year or two because sooner or later Nancy Pelosi will be gone, sooner or later Chuck Schumer will be gone, and then we can go back to calling each other racist and sexist and all the things uh, we, we like to do. Um, that's why uh, the Democrats are getting right now advice that they would do well to see off Joe Biden and also Hamla Harris and have an open primary. I just can't think of anything that would do them worse because I don't think they're capable of having that kind of competition um, without it turning into a bloodbath season by these vicious accusations against each other. That's a good segue to my, my next question, David. A, a major fault line in the British Conservative Party's leadership race so far isn't so much about economic and fiscal policy. It's about how conservatives ought to confront so-called wokeism on the left. Uh, we've talked a bit about this question in, in previous episodes. Uh, what's your sense, David? Is a full-throated opposition to progressive ideas about race, gender, and identity a political winner for Anglosphere conservatives? Well, one of my rules of life, one of my rules as a journalist, and I think it's a good rule for politics, is no arguments about arguments. So if you observe that your opposing party is doing itself a lot of damage by pitting race against race, sex against sex, by um, investing a lot of energy in kind of boutique causes not of interest to other people – the way you combat that is not by saying, look at, you know, let's look at what they're doing and do the opposite. You do it another thing else entirely. You say, okay, they, the other team is, is concerned with boutique issues that no one cares about. We're going to be concerned about um, massive issues that everybody cares about. So instead of um, sa saying they talk too much about wokeism, and we'll talk less, you say, we will talk about inflation, we will talk about fixing supply chains, we will talk about providing better health coverage at you know, more accessible prices. Do the thing that you're against. It's too cheap and easy. And indeed, anti-wokeism reminds me there's an old, old joke about the big um, confrontation in uh, Union Square in New York downtown where they used to have the radical meetings and the communists are there and different kinds of socialist anti-communists are protesting against them and the police arrive and start arresting everybody and throwing them back into the vans to take them downtown. And one of the socialists protests, why are you arresting me? I'm an anti-communist. And the police officer says, I don't care what goddamn kind of communist you are, you are going downtown. And the, you know, I think there's something about this, the anti-wokes seem just as irrelevant to the lives of everyday people. You know, and there's something, I mean, transgender 
ideology, that's a pretty marginal cause. But so is being against transgender ideology. That's also a marginal cause. Inflation, inflation, inflation. That's what you need to talk about. The cost of living. Uh, uh, dealing with, in the British case, how do you secure customers? They've put up giant walls against their most important customers, against their uh, most important suppliers, against their most important investors, against the most important recipients of their investors. They have made Amsterdam and Dublin and other uh, cities in, in Europe much more attractive to financial services than, than London. Um, you've seen a collapse in business investment in the UK. What are you going to do about those things? Now, it's awkward for the Conservatives to talk about them because talking about how you will repair the damage done by Brexit means you have to acknowledge that Brexit did damage. And if you can't face that fact, then you can't fix the damage. But sooner or later, that's going to be the central issue in, in British politics. How do you fix the damage done by Brexit? Let's pivot from uh, issues to to process for a minute, and I want to talk about the the leadership selection process, both within the the British Conservative Party, but but here in Canada as well. Listeners and viewers will just have to bear with me for a second because there is a degree of complexity here. The the British Conservatives have a hybrid model whereby Conservative parliamentarians vote down the number of candidates to two, and then the one hundred sixty thousand or so Conservative Party members choose among them later this summer. Canadian Conservatives, by contrast, have a member-driven process, which means that the leadership candidates spent the first several weeks of the campaign selling memberships to expand the universe of eligible voters. The number is now something like 675,000, which is two and a half times more than the party had in its 2020 leadership election. David, what are we to make of these different models? What are the pros and cons of the British hybrid model versus Canada's member-driven approach? Well, um, you always have to begin by saying, what are you trying to achieve? Because until you have a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve, you can't judge whether you're succeeding in achieving it. So the Canadian process is driven above all by saying, look, leadership contests are opportunities to make the parties bigger, also to make some money because the memberships are not free. They don't cost much, but they cost enough that they add up to revenue. And of course, candidates in Canada have to put um, big deposits from their depo uh, from their donors. And the, the rules on donating, uh, donating to the nomination process are much laxer in Canada than the rules for general election. So they ask for a big deposit from each of the candidates, which goes to the party. So this is a big party fundraising and membership selling exercise. And in that, in that respect, uh, it's very successful. Um, it's also an exercise, or you think it's an exercise, in finding a leader of the party who will be attractive in a general election. And from that point of view, they've, uh, this is a pretty bad model. This is how you get a Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the, the British Labour Party, which used to have a system where unions had a lot of power, changed its rules in the 2010 so that they went to the Canadian model. For Anybody could become a member of the Labour Party for three pounds um, and vote for, uh, vote for the leader of their choice. And the people who bought the three pound memberships were people who had not historically been members of the Labour Party, who were recruited through social media, who had intense interest in ultra left wing politics and loved Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and the Jeremy Corbyn people would say, well, look, you know, we're selling all these memberships. We're, we're bringing new energy to the Labour Party. And it was un invisible to them. Yeah, you're bringing a bunch of highly committed part, ultra left-wing partisans into the Labour Party. You're alienating the tens of millions of people we're going to need in the general election. And you've saddled us with an unelectable candidate who has no loyalty to the Labour Party at all. And who right now actually has been expelled from the Labour Party because of his violation of internal party rules. If what you're looking for is a way of winning. Then you have to put, empower people who really care about winning. Um, and that's why the traditional model of the Conservative Party, which was the MPs in Parliament, 
choose the leader. Whatever that that was clubby, it was insidery. But my God, the Conservative Party of Great Britain is the winningest or political organization in the democratic world. I think I once looked it up, and over the course of the, the century leading before Tony Blair, the Conservative Party of Great Britain held power for more years than the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was a totalitarian organization with a secret police force. They just win and win and win. And the reason they would win in those days is because being a backbench opposition MP is a terrible experience. And so the MPs would say, would say you know, I have my you know, I like this person, I don't like that person, but what I'm really looking for is someone who can get us into governments and make my job less terrible than it otherwise would be. Canada has come up with, essentially, the Jeremy Corbyn, the, the formula for picking Jeremy Corbyn. And it's very energizing. All the new people bring into the party. Canada has found a way to get a lot of people who hate vaccines and love Bitcoin uh, to join the Conservative Party. Um, is that where the election is going to be fought when it becomes a general election, or are you, in fact, orienting yourself and, and anchoring yourself to people with some pretty marginal concerns? I would really worry about that if I were a Canadian conservative. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. To that point, David, uh, former Canadian Conservative MP Peter Kent recently described his party's approach to leadership selection as, quote, a flash mob in which the short-term members don't necessarily have long-term interests or stakes in the party. Yet the candidate who's presumed to have sold the most memberships, Pierre Polyev, has also received the majority or at least the plurality of caucus endorsements. Is that a sign that Polyev is a unique candidate with both insider and outsider credentials? Or is it a sign that there may be less of a gap in general between more establishment-driven selection models versus more egalitarian ones? No, I think, and without going into personalities, I think what it indicates is this, is that Polyev is, is, is an insider. He's been a member of parliament for a long time. He's well known. He's, been, he's a terrific performer in the House of Commons, a ferocious debater, um, has, been, has excelled at holding the Justin Trudeau government to account. And so he's won the support of a lot of insiders. Um, he then decided to identify himself with the concerns of a lot of people who are not traditional conservative voters, the, the anti-vaccine pro-Bitcoin people, who are very present on social media and very present in this small fringe party. Uh, well, I'm gonna, I just blanked on, on the, the name of the former leader of that party. I'm sorry, P, uh, Bernier, Maxime Bernier's party. And they had some pretty marginal concerns. And I think while I've had maybe sincerely, maybe tactically, maybe strategically, some view to bring them into the process. So the, the issue now is, is you can't unbrand yourself. Most Canadians had never heard of him. He was well known in, in the Conservative caucus and they had view about his talents and intelligence, uh, his energy. Um, he is now known to the general people, to the general electorate in Canada as the guy, the guy if you're anti-vaccine and pro-Bitcoin, this is your candidate. Um, if you aren't those things, maybe you are not being spoken to. And that's going to be, a, I think, a, a real issue. These, and um, it, the, the process created a temptation, even for someone who was an insider candidate, to position himself in a way to attract the, the attention of a lot of outsiders. One more thing about the Canadian process. 
these races are always dogged by massive accusations of fraud. Um, memberships sold in improper way, sold in bulk, which is against the rules, um, paid for in ways that are against the rules. And I, I just, it, it's amazing that there are not more of these accusations because the whole process incentivizes exactly the kind of behavior that the process supposedly condemns. Um, and, and because the, the, the conservatives are torn and the other parties who use this method are torn, they want to sell a lot of memberships. Um, so they want to make sure that there, there's a, that each of the membership fees comes from an identifiable person. But they also want to collect a lot of revenue. And if you're collecting a lot of revenue, it doesn't really matter so much whether whether one person is buying one membership or whether one person is buying 100 memberships for 100 people. Um, and so the uh, the fraud is is highly engineered in, into the system, or what the, what the system regards as fraud is engineered into the system, it's incentivized. And then, of course, if you're caught doing the fraud, you, you're thrown out of the race. And so that you, that, it then creates these fratricidal impulses where con- candidates defeat other candidates, not by meeting them on the ground of the competition of ideas or the competition of constituencies, but by exposing them for breaking the rules, which just about everybody does or is incentivized to do. Um, and that then drives them out of the race, but in a way that leaves behind a lot of hard feelings. Talking about hard feelings, a conversation about political leadership in the world of Anglosphere conservatism can't help but come to Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party in the 2016 presidential cycle. As we've been discussing, David, political parties are supposed to be institutions with interests and values that transcend a single individual or election cycle. Yet we learned that the GOP was basically a hollow shell that was ultimately vulnerable to someone like Trump. What does that experience tell us about the state of political parties in the United States? And what are the lessons in your view? Well, I I think there's something um, very profound that has been going on. We've talked about this before across the developed world, uh, which is as democratic societies become more affluent, there are more and more people who are in politics in order for self-actualization, not because they want some material thing. They're not there because they want a road or a bridge or even uh, a new social program. They're there because they have strong feelings of identity and belonging and alienation. They want, they look to politics to express those. Um, and so candidates who do a good job of tapping those feelings are, tend to come to the fore. But the problem with those candidates is they don't do well in general elections. And that has been the Trump. I mean, Trump gives voice to the anger of a lot of people. Um, he enough to win a Republican nomination and enough to win a pretty strong um, minority of the American electorate. But Donald Trump has now failed to win the larger share of the vote in two presidential elections in a, in a row. And there's there's good reason to think that if he's the nominee again in 2024, he will do that three times. Uh, the William Jennings Bryan trifecta. Um, Bryan at least took a pause. Uh, they, they, you know, the Democrats uh, tried, him, tried him twice. He failed both times. They fired him in 1904, but then he got another shot at it in 1908. They, um, they, they just couldn't learn the, the lesson. So that, there's, there's an issue. And Republicans have had a hard time dealing with this because if you're going to deal with Trump, so, sooner or later someone has to bell the cap. Someone has to be willing to fight him. And they're just not. They're, they're, they're all hoping that another Republican will knock him out of the race and then allow the more opportunistic Republicans uh, to step in and pick up the advantage. Uh, but of course, the problem is they're all opportunistic. So no, no one is going to volunteer to be the hero of the case who gets rid of Trump and opens the door to somebody else. And Donald Trump is now going to do one more negative thing to his party. As you and I speak, 
and I, there's a little lag between when we record and when these things post, so I need to be clear about the time. As you and I speak, the, the Washington Post is reporting just this very day that Donald Trump intends to uh, declare himself a candidate in September of 2022, ensuring that, you know, if you're a regular Republican office holder, this would make you crazy because the party's coasting toward good results for itself in the election of 20 November. Um, the candidate whom who most Republican donors and office holders would prefer, Governor DeSantis of Florida. He looks like he's heading to a big re-election. And Trump is arranging things to grab the spotlight from everybody else, fix it onto him, be ready to claim credit for everybody else's victories. And at a moment when Republicans feel vulnerable with their own voters between September and November, ex- uh, extract cons- de- deference and maybe even endorsements from people where he will say, I'm, I'm, the, I'm running in 20." Four, will you in September of 22, when you need me, endorse me ahead of the election of November? Um, and he's, I think, trying to force, create pressure on DeSantis uh, to come up with either to early endorse Trump or early declare DeSantis an opponent of Trump's, either way harming DeSantis. There's a lot of insight there. Just as an aside, you know, the, the, it seems to me the most profound expression of the institutional paralysis and weakness that you talk about is a story that's been um, reported in one of these Trump books uh, about Ryan Priebus, Paul Ryan, and Mitch McConnell not prepared to step in and act in the context of the um, Access Hollywood tapes. Even in that extraordinary moment, the Republican Party seemed incapable of protecting its interests as an institution beyond a, a single election cycle, which I suppose, David, begs a, a bigger question. How can we strengthen the durability of political parties while at the same time achieve, achieving greater inclusivity and supporting broad-based political participation? Is there a tension here and how should we think about it? There definitely is a, a tension because the things that gets people to be committed to parties, gets them excited, gets them energized, can often be very out, off-putting to outsiders and to the, the, the voters in the middle. This is, this is a dilemma that I think every political party has struggled with once we move into the era of open participation. That's why in the United States there's so much um, nostalgia oftentimes for the old days of political conventions because the conventions were single-mindedly focused on winning. And the modern primary system is really not single-mindedly focused on winning. So it's it's not a resolvable problem. You have to balance it. Um, but you, uh, you at least you need to be aware that, the, that, that what, what parties often mistake for energy is in fact fever. Um, the, the thing that is making people excited and come out for someone, uh, the classic example of this is even more than Jeremy Corbyn, Ron Paul. The Ron Paul supporters were convinced that they were going to transform American politics because there were tens of thousands of people who loved Ron Paul, raised money in the early days of online fundraising. And the idea was, yeah, there are tens of thousands of, of people like Ron Paul and every single one of them is involved in this project. Um, and Meanwhile, everyone who is not belongs to the 300 or so million people who are not joining the money bomb. So just be aware that what gets your core followers excited is often not merely not working for everybody else, but maybe actively off-putting to the voters you most will need in the general election. Let's wrap up where we started uh, with these two parallel races occurring within conservative politics and Britain and Canada. What do these races tell us, David, about the state of Anglosphere conservatism? Do you have any closing thoughts on that question? Well, what both races have in common is that we are seeing, I think, through the developed world, a a great rotation of 
uh, of adherence within the parties. That 50 years ago, one of the simplest ways to sum up the way parties worked was that the people who were in um, in the waged industrial labor force of their country tended to vote for uh, parties of the left, and people who were in the professional and managerial uh, salaried labor force tended to vote for parties of the right. And that model is really over. And what we're seeing is first, the wage industrial labor force has shrunk so much. And their children and grandchildren now if, uh, are involved in parties of the right. And meanwhile, the salaried and professional labor force has grown so much. And it is often migrating into parties of the left. And so you get this change of identity that everyone is trying to cope with. And that's why issues like Brexit can, can shake up the politics because it is Brexit was unpopular with the grandchildren of people who voted for conservatives in the 1960s and 70s, but very popular with the grandchildren of people who voted for labor in the 60s and 70s. And in the same way, you can see this happening in Canada, that um, where the, the kind of affluent ridings that used to be the strongholds of conservatism in the six, Canadian conservatism in the 60s and 70s are now some of the most difficult places for Canadian conservatives to reach. So we are having a kind of migration of the social basis of the parties, and that is forcing changes in the ideology, but in ways often that are not leading to good governance, because a lot of the ideas that the new parties of the right turn to as a way to bridge the gap, trade protectionism, exiting trade agreements, anti-vaccine theories, these are I mean, they're bad ideas on the merits, um, and they are also off-putting to the people who will decide the next election. Well, David, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, the subject of political realignment is something that we've talked about on previous episodes and, and no doubt will take up in the future. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.